But let's open up to John chapter 5, John's Gospel. And let me read to you the first 15 verses. That's what we're going to look at this morning. It says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, because wherever you go in Israel, you're always going up to Mount Zion. Uh, all the landscape, you're always going up. So whenever you read that, <laughs> they went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. And then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there, and he had an infirmity 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And so Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well. He took up his bed, and he walked. And that day was the Sabbath. And the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And then they said to him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Father, we just thank you for this passage. And Lord, we pray that you would just uh, open it to us, Lord, and that you would encourage us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So John chapter 5, obviously we're at this place where Jesus is, is, is healing a paralytic man. And if you remember, this is the third sign or third miracle that Jesus did that is recorded for us. The first one we saw in chapter 2 where he turned the water into wine. The second one was one that we looked at last week, and that was the healing of a nobleman's son who was in Capernaum. And then finally today we'll see the healing of a paralytic man. And remember, all of these signs were for a purpose. They weren't here just to educate us and uh, tickle our fancies. They, they're here for a very specific purpose. In fact, John's a theme, if you will, for this entire gospel is recorded for us in the 20th chapter and in the 31st verse where he said, these things are written. These things that we're reading are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And so all of these things show God's power and strength over all things. After all, if he created the world and everything that's in them, and all the living creatures, and then finally us. Isn't it very easy for him to speak to a man who is ill, has a disease? It doesn't matter what disease you have. If it's God's will, God can speak and heal you, even though you've got stage 5 cancer, if there exists such a thing. You could be on the, your deathbed, and the doctors have walked away, and your pulse has stopped, and God can breathe new life into you and say, rise and you will rise, because that's the God we serve. He's not an impotent God. He is an omnipotent God. He is all-powerful. He is able to do these things. The title of this morning's message is, Do You Want to Be Made Well? And that is a very poignant phrase, a poignant question, and we're going to look into that today. And it's going to get a little uncomfortable when we get into this a little bit. And it'll make sense as we get going here. But notice with me back at verse 1. It says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We don't really know what feast this is. We know that between uh, John's 4th uh, and 5th uh, chapter here, they're if they are in chronological order, and I believe they are, there are at least 10 different things that are recorded that happen in the life of Jesus between these two chapters. 
And we know that the, the Passover occurred in and around John chapter 3 and 4, because that was when Jesus met with Nicodemus around the time of the Passover. And so the feast that is mentioned here, it could be another Passover, because we know that there are uh, a few Passovers that are recorded, three of them, three or four of them, three of them, that are recorded in the Gospel of John. But the feast here, it could be the feast of of the Passover. It could be the Feast of Pentecost. There was enough time for some of those things to occur. So we don't really know, and it doesn't really matter. Um, But let's remember that the book of John was uh, cherry-picked, if you will, by Jesus, or by John, excuse me. All the events in this book are are taken. Uh, You remember the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all cover similar uh, topics and similar things in the life of Jesus. But the Gospel of John stands aside by itself. And so John just took those things that were going to show very clearly that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so um, that's good to remember as we go along. Now in verse 2, back in our text, it says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. Bethesda is literally the house of mercy or the house of pity. And if you go to Jerusalem with us, you will see this uh, place, and most of it is covered today. There's only a small fraction of it. But if you were to look at the Temple Mount, uh, today, and you were look, uh, if you were to envision uh, the Temple Mount, right to the right of the Temple Mount is the Sheep Gate, and right to the north of that, or to the east of that, excuse me, are the pools of Bethesda. And um, basically, they were two enclosures, which are basically two big cisterns that held water. And um, th- this area in this location is where Jesus healed this man. And Like I said, if you go to Jerusalem or to Israel with us this next March, I would encourage you to pray about that. You will visit this place. You will visit this place. And today, this place is, um, here is St. Anne's Church right to the the east of this place called Bethesda. And remember that Jerusalem is a tell, meaning that many many, uh, cities or or many... um, civilizations upon, Israel, upon Jerusalem have been built over the years. It's been destroyed and reconstructed, destroyed and reconstructed, thus creating layers, layers of, of, the, of the city over time. And so when you look at this, this is the only part that is visible today, and you can see the porticos uh, of this uh, place where Jesus did this healing. And um, it's a really fascinating place. Uh, there's been a lot of... Um, uh, excavation in those areas, and right to the south there, uh, which is underground that you can't see right now, is was the southern pool, and then to the north of that was the north pool, a very large place where these porticos and this porch, these porches that Jesus was at, and uh, a lot of history here, and when we visit that place, uh, we talk about all of these different things, but there's been many layers, Byzantine uh, churches, uh, a temple uh, from, from uh, Hadrian have been built over this area. And again, um, but when you're there, you can look down and see the floor, the ground from where Jerusalem was, the, the street level at that time, and you can see where Jesus would have walked. And it's really a, quite a fascinating place, quite a fascinating place. So in verse 3 it says, In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool, stirred up the water, and then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. Now you may notice in your Bible that there is a portion of these verses, the last part of chapter, or verse 3, excuse me, where it says, waiting for the moving of the water. In some manuscripts, that's not there. And including, uh, including chapter, or verse 4, excuse me, uh, some of the manuscripts don't even have that there. But it doesn't really matter because when we get to verse 7, we know that it's still speaking of this idea of the water being moved. And there's something about this that is quite interesting 
We know that uh, there's no Greek manuscripts uh, surviving before 400 AD that has these words in them. But I, I think it's interesting that the Lord includes it, the Holy Spirit includes it in here. Uh, because the people back at this time, just like we find in our culture and many cultures of the world, are very superstitious. And there's a lot of superstition in the world, and we will get to that. But would God have caused this to make it some kind of competition? As you read this, the man couldn't get down into the, into the pool unless somebody took him. Does that sound like the Lord to you? Honestly. Would God create, uh, on purpose, would he create a situation where the, the fittest and the, most, the, the survival of the fittest can get to the, to the, to the pool first and, and be healed? Does that sound like something the Lord would engineer himself? I don't think it is. But the Holy Spirit includes it in here to show the, 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 the thoughts of the people. He doesn't hide. I mean, if I were God, I would omit this from the Bible itself because I wouldn't want any kind of superstition in the Word of God. But I love the Word of God that it's very clear. It's, it doesn't apologize for what people were thinking. In fact, I think it's good that it, di- it does because it really exposes where people are at. And isn't the Word of God like that? Doesn't it expose us? And then doesn't it give us a solution? I love that about the Word of God. It doesn't talk about its, its heroes of the faith and, does, and, and leaves out all their bad things. No. We hear about Peter and denying the Lord three times. We hear all these things. God includes them. But see, God is not cruel. And I believe it is superstition that it crept into the lives of the people at this time. And superstition has no place for the child of God. Amen? And yet today, and in many cultures, over in Europe, when I was over in Bulgaria a few years ago, they're filled with superstition. Everything is superstitious. You know, uh, you got to be careful. You don't, you know, don't get married on Friday the 13th. You know, watch out for the black cats. Don't go under a ladder. You know, uh, don't step on the crack on the sidewalk. You might break your mother's back. You know, all these silly little things. And, you know, we attribute all these things of chance. We, we attribute them to, to something else. And we, we fail to realize that God is in control. Believe me, we could have all the black cats parading in front of the sanctuary and we could continue preaching and God would be like, so what? They're cats. <laughs> I could be preaching under a ladder. I could be sharing under a ladder on Friday the 13th and stepping on a crack at the same time. There is one here, actually. But God is not cruel. And why would God allow this man to be in in this state as long as he did? You know, we don't always understand the role of sickness and setbacks in our life, but God does. And let me ask you the question, do you trust him? Do you trust him? Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not, notice, on your own understanding. and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. That is the thing that we need to do. We need to trust the Lord no matter what. Amen? In verse 6 in our text, it says, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition for a long time, he said to him, and notice the question, underline this question, because this is the topic, this is the, the, the title of the message this morning, is do you want to be made whole, to be made well? Do you want to be made whole? It would seem to make sense that here I am crippled, of course I want to be made whole. And you know what? It's very probable there were other people there with that man as well, and wanted healing. And what about them? You know, have you ever thought about that? As he's there, he's one of many. And yet God, Jesus, he singles out this one man. The scripture doesn't say why he didn't heal. He only healed him and not everybody else. Why? I'll give you the answer, and I know for sure. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why God does that. But he looked at everyone there, and he was able to discern and to know and to understand who had the greatest need and who had the faith to be healed and who he was going to heal regardless of the measure of their faith. It was this man. It was this day. It was his time. Do you want to be made well? A very interesting question that we're going to develop here this morning We're going to look at Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52, and let me read it to you. 
You recall that this uh, happened right before Jesus' triumphal entry within the last week of his life here on the earth. Remember, as he is going, he is down in Jericho in the Jordan Plain, and he is going to make his ascent from from Jericho, excuse me. He's going to make his ascent from Jericho there in the Jordan Plain all the way up into Jerusalem. And it says that when he came to Jericho, as he went out of Jericho with his disciples, a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, notice he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David. This is a a messianic phrase. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, the son of David, have mercy on me. And what does Bethesda mean? Mercy. (laughs) It's kind of interesting how we're looking at this passage, and yet Bethesda is the house of mercy. Have mercy on me, God. And then in verse 49 of that same chapter, Jesus stood still, and he commanded him to be called. And then they called the blind man, saying to him, be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and he came to Jesus. And again, notice the question that Jesus asked. Jesus answered and said unto him, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Are you kidding? Can't you see that my eyes, I'm blind. I had to stagger to get here. I had people help me to to, to find you, Jesus. The obvious, it's very obvious. Can't you see? I'm blind. What do you want me to do for you? This seems like an obvious question. Very similar question to what Jesus asked this lame man here in John 5. But Jesus knew that Bartimaeus was blind. But notice that he waited to see how he would answer. Just because he was blind, he may have had something different. He may have asked for something different. Maybe the man would ask, you know what, I've got a family member who's dying. Could you please heal them? But he asks him, what do you want me to do for you? He goes beyond the obvious. What do you want? And Jesus encourages us today to ask him. In James chapter 4, verse 2, it says, You lust and you do not have. You murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and you war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And the obvious thing is, for God wants us to ask. And obviously when we ask, we ask according to his will. And if I ask according to his will, I'm not going to ask him things that I know are sinful. I'm not going to ask him things that I know are against the word of God. I'm not going to ask him things that are going to just, I'm just going to gratiate upon my flesh. I can say, Lord, I want one of those new Escalades with leather interior, Corinthian leather from Italy because they make the best leather, amen? Amen. And the best pasta and everything else. But anyway, I could ask him for all these things when God say, Rob, what are you going to do with that? Oh, I'm going to pick up the people and bring them to church. Oh, really? Could you do that in a Volkswagen instead? Mm, no, I really can't. I need that Escalade. Brand new, you know, 2023 model. Hasn't come out yet, but I want that one. And see, he knows the, the, our hearts. He knows, but he wants us to ask, ask. In fact, in Matthew 7, what did Jesus say? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. The the, the idea of persistence is here. You keep knocking. You keep asking. Don't just give up. You pray one time. Oh, it didn't work. I guess I'm going to move on. No, you keep asking, and you keep praying. You keep praying. Perseverance is something that we need today. We so easily give up. Don't give up, saints. You keep asking, you keep knocking, you keep praying. He says, for everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man there is among you, if he asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? Jesus in John chapter 16 would say, Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father, notice, in my name. In my name. There's the clue. I don't just ask for anything. If I ask it in his name, I'm going to ask it because it's necessary for what God has for me in my life. It's okay to ask for other things too, but don't get disappointed if you don't get that house on Lake Avenue. He may give it to you. (laughs) 
He may just give it to you, but he is not a rabbit's foot, and we don't ask him to consume things upon our lust. But he says, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, he said to his disciples, you've asked me nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I love that. Ask. Now, I believe that the vast majority of people who are sick or crippled, they want to be healed. They want to be whole. Wouldn't you agree? The vast majority of people who are in those conditions do want to be made whole. But Jesus didn't put these words in here. He didn't waste his time. And what I'm going to share is going to sting a few of you, and I don't mean it to. But I've known situations like this. I've met people who are in this condition. And, and I'm not saying that if you are infirm, if you um, have some kind of issue or disease or whatever, that this applies to you at all. It may, it may not, okay? But I've seen this in my own life, and I believe there are some people who don't want to be healed. Have you met somebody who didn't want to be healed? I think the majority of people do, but I've met some that do not want to be healed. There are some people that would rather stay in their predicament. Their predicament is predictable, it's safe, they've learned that it doesn't require faith, it doesn't require any effort, and unfortunately they get stuck there. Have you known somebody to get stuck in something? And they just, they don't, they gave up, they've given up, they don't want to do it. Why might this happen? Because some have either been sick or maimed for so long it becomes a part of their identity, doesn't it? This is who I am. I've been, I've been in this wheelchair for 10 years and that's the way I'm, gonna, I'm always going to be there and I'm going to be here forever. And again, don't misunderstand me. There are people who are seriously maimed and, and ill and but there are those who kind of get introverted and they get despondent. And those things are, are, are not good for them, right? We know that that's not good. But I've met people like that. It, it, it kind of becomes their identity, unfortunately. This is who I am. And they wouldn't know how to cope being made whole. Maybe they've been ill for so long, they wouldn't know if, if God healed them what they would even do. And some do it, uh, you know, why might they want to stay in their predicament? For fear of new expectations being placed on them because now they're well and now they're able to work and be active again. And that's scary for someone who has been ill or incapacitated for some time. That happens, doesn't it? And sometimes, unfortunately, somebody may not want to get out of the predicament because of the attention they receive. Some people like that attention and the fuss that people make over them. Have you known people like that? Again, this is hard, I know, but these things are true. And sometimes they just get despondent. They get lazy. And laziness can kick in in every one of us, and some just give up. And some people are just okay with nobody expecting anything from them. There are no challenges. It's easy. And we need to pray for folks like that. And not everybody feels that way. I would say there's a minority of people who are really in these things that I'm reading to you that are in that state. And that's not an easy thing to say, but I know that those things are true. And sometimes there's even a financial benefit to not being healed, to just stay in their current state. They don't cry out to God anymore. They don't even want to seek the operation that might heal them because they've been sick so long. But these things happen. But do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? Do you believe that Jesus can make you well? Have you asked him to make you well? He can. Have you asked once and then given up? Keep asking, unless the Lord says to you that you need to endure this for his glory for some reason. You keep asking. You keep knocking until he gives you that sense that this is my will for your life. And there's reasons that I can't, you can't understand now, but as, you, as time goes on, I will reveal to you, and you will see why this was a good thing for you. And I'm going to do things, I'm going to be glorified in and through your life, through this. And so far, we've been talking about physical illness. But what about spiritual illness? What about this separation from God, that for those who have rejected Christ, they will spend an eternity in hell? But is that God's heart? He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. 
It's his will that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants you to be in heaven with him, where there is pleasures forevermore. He doesn't want you to go to hell. You send yourself there. He just confirms your choice. Do you know that? He doesn't send anybody there. He confirms the choice that you have made. So do you want to be saved? Do you want to be born again? Saved to heaven with Jesus forever, away from eternal damnation. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus passed on and he saw a man, Matthew, sitting in the tax collector's office. And he said to him, follow me. And so he arose and followed him. And it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, going to Matthew's house, that many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, and he wasn't talking about just the physically sick, because he turns it around and goes into the eternal now, and he says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now he's getting eternal. Now he's talking about repentance and sinners. It's not just a physical thing anymore. What about it? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be whole in every sense of the word not only physically but spiritually and God Jesus Christ has made that provision for you you have to step out in faith and ask him but some people have walked in darkness for so long it is their familiar friend do you remember when you walked in darkness it became so familiar to you you know and you hear people joking about it all the time You know, when somebody confronts them about heaven, they're like, no, man, I'm going to go to hell and I'm going to have a party with my friends. They become so familiar with darkness that they no longer have a desire. They're very comfortable in that place. It's a comfortable place. Sin and darkness can get very homey and we can get very settled in it. Not any of you, if you come to know the, the Lord, you don't have to worry about that. But there are people who love their darkness. They love their darkness. It's all they've ever known, and they're afraid to change. Darkness and misery can be a friend to someone who knows no better and hasn't tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And such were some of us. And I can say that that was my heart at a certain time. Back in 1964, Simon and Garfunkel wrote a song called The Sounds of Silence, or The Sound of Silence. And the words in the very beginning, you remember, Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Darkness can be a friend. And that's why Jesus would say, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world. He has come into the world, and men, notice, loved. They agape, agape, they love darkness, Rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Men love darkness. That's why they don't come to the light. And I'm so glad the miracle of miracles that God touched my heart in the middle of my darkness. I was loving my darkness. I loved my sin. Otherwise, I would have given up on it. But the devil always has this carrot that he puts out in front of you saying, Oh, just grab the carrot. You know, take the gold. See what's flashing, the lights, the music. Oh, the beat is so wonderful. Just get wrapped up in it. Party. Grab the Bud Light. Like the commercials. You know, they show all these people having a great time and they don't show them the next morning. (laughs) Sitting on the bathroom floor, waking up to somebody they never met before. It's all a big party. And yet it's darkness. It's darkness. And we get very comfortable in darkness. And the devil loves it when you're comfortable in the darkness But notice in our text, in verse 7, it says, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another one steps in. Yes, there is no man to help. Notice that. No man to help. Unfortunately, mankind, as you know, within your own self and what's true in the world, mankind is selfish. They're self-centered. In our old nature, we only look out for number one, which is yourself. 
That's the way the world is. But yes, there was no man, but there was the Son of Man standing before him, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. No man to help him. And maybe you've been in a place where no man can help you. You've exhausted all the doctor's pills, all of the surgeries, and you're still in agony, you're still in pain, and you never once reached out and asked God and said, Lord, help me, please. When's the last time you were in a malady and you fasted and prayed? And you said, God, if you don't speak to me, I'm going to die. Emotionally, maybe even physically, Lord, I am at a place that I've never thought I would be. I need you, Jesus. Would you please help me? Because, see, when man, and you know this true to yourself, when man comes to the end of himself, he exhausts all of his resources and his natural thinking. That's the only time that he looks up. After we've exhausted all of our own resources, after all of our thinking is, is, is run into a dead end, then we finally look up. Well, why don't you go to God first? Wouldn't you rather have God help you? Sometimes we can be looking at man and only considering the natural and forget that God can do anything and that he is the God of the supernatural as well. Think about it. If he's able to speak everything into existence when there was nothing, isn't he able to do anything that you might be stricken with? He's able. But do you believe it? And I have seen this happen to people. I've heard about it and I've seen it myself. I've seen God do wonderful things. Unfortunately, man's propensity is to rely on broken cisterns, on helps that don't really offer help. What does it say in Jeremiah? Jeremiah said, my people, speaking to Israel before they would go into captivity, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, number one, the fountain of living waters, and number two, they've hewn themselves cisterns. A cistern is a very specific thing, and it has a purpose. And the purpose is to hold water. When it would rain, they would capture the water in there, and that would be a, a very functional purpose for a cistern. But God is saying, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and instead they've hewn for themselves cisterns that can hold no water. It can hold no water. We go to everything else but God. But notice, this man, in our text today, he cries out to Jesus. He cries out to him. In Psalm 60, it says, give Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Sometimes the help of man is very useless. It doesn't mean that we can't be helpful. But ideally, most importantly, the help of man is useless. And what about Psalm 118? It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Because no one, as this man is sitting at the pool, no one had the compassion, no one had the love to help this man. Two men could have grabbed this man and say, you know what, I'm not in as bad a predicament as this guy is. Let's grab him and take him down there. And his faith would have made him whole. Who cares about the stirring of the water? I don't think it was the angel or the supposed angel stirring the water that got the job done. I think it was the faith of the individual saying, I believe that God can heal me. They could have all jumped in that pool that day and they could have come away healed. They could have. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. In Numbers 11, when Israel was going through the wilderness, you remember there came a point where Moses had told, had told the Lord that, you know, the people are many, and, we, you know, how, am I, how are we going to feed this many people? We have to slaughter several thousands of sheep and cattle. Where's our water going to come from? It was a very natural question, very natural need and the Lord said to Moses, has the Lord's arm been shortened? Is, not, is, this, is his arm shortened that he can't do this? Now you shall see whether what I say will happen to you or not. God is able. Do you believe that? Even today in 2021, is God able? 
He is. He's able. And he loves you. And he loves this man. But cry out to him. Notice in our text, verse 8, Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. Notice the command of God. This is a command. Here he is. I mean, think of the the guts to be able to do that, to look at a lame man who's been there for 38 years. Every day, sitting there, nobody helps him. And Jesus comes and says, rise and take up your bed and walk. And Jesus probably reached on his hand for the guy. And then he had a choice to make. Do I really want to be made well? I kind of enjoy the pity that I get here. People throw me money. He chose. And the Lord convicted him. And you notice Jesus wasn't concerned about what day it was either. It was the Sabbath. And if you know what that means... What that means is we're listening to a very cheerful song in a major key, and all of a sudden it gets really slow and it turns to minor. (laughs) He did this on the Sabbath. Oh, no. Going to make some people mad. And immediately the man was made holy, took up his bed, he walked, and that day was the Sabbath. Dum, da, dum, dum. The man had faith in Jesus and did what Jesus asked him to do. He, he responded in faith. And the man didn't argue with Jesus or offer rebuttals. He didn't force Jesus to follow the science. Jesus, follow the science for heaven's sakes. I don't even have the, the ligaments in my feet are not even equipped to stand. Follow the science. Have you heard that word lately? He is the God of science. Science is a study of what God has already done, (laughs) right? And he can speak to the man's ligaments and his bones and say, don't worry, gentlemen. Your ligaments are whole. I just made them whole while we were sitting here. Rise. Follow the science, Jesus. Follow the science. Dr. Fauci said I can't stand. (laughs) Ah, but you stand. And he reaches and he grabs his hand and he pulls him up. And can you imagine the scuttle that that caused? 38 years. Notice the man didn't wait until he went to the doctors and received three months' supply of some new pill. This healing was immediate. He took up his bed and walked. And these things happen today. I recall a, 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 an event that happened a number of years ago. And Pastor, I wasn't in Israel with Pastor Jeff at this time, but we went, or I'm sorry, he went with the, with the group from the Finger Lakes. Same group we're going to go with next year. And while they were in Gethsemane, one of the pastors was sharing. And it wasn't even about healing. It wasn't about healing. And there was a woman who was crippled who was on that tour. She had, I believe it was a cane or, 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 or um, uh, what do they call those things? Uh, crutches. She, had, she was on crutches. Try getting around in Israel in crutches. Yeah, she did. People helped her. But she's sitting there in the Garden of Gethsemane. She had a legitimate foot issue. She couldn't, she couldn't walk on her feet. And while the Bible study is going on, had nothing to do with healing at all, she started to make a squeal. And this was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And she goes, I think the Lord just touched me. I think the Lord just touched me. And she literally got up and was walking around and everyone was just kind of... She was joyful she was crying she was walking around and and it was an amazing thing her crutches were gone the lord touched her on the spot we hear about these things god can do these things don't argue with god do what he says Remember in in the 2 Kings chapter 5 the commander of the Syria's army his name was Naaman and he had leprosy and, he, and leprosy was, nobody was ever cured from leprosy except for Miriam back in the book of Exodus. And that was God's doing. So now this, this pagan Gentile gets leprosy. And his, his wife's maid comes to him and says, I know someone who can heal you. Elisha down in in Samaria, in Israel. He can help you. And remember what happened. He goes down to 
uh, Elisha's house, and Elisha comes and he brings all this gold, this big entourage. He brings all of these rewards that he's going to give to the prophet if he can cure him of his leprosy. Big entourage of people, all this gold and silver and all this stuff, and Elisha doesn't even come out of his house. He just sends a servant. He says, go tell him to wash uh, seven times in the Jordan and uh, he'll be healed. I could have done that back home, Naaman says. We got better streams there. We got better rivers, cleaner rivers. And you want me to go down into this Jordan River and wash myself some? Man, I'm out of here. I wasted my time. And then somebody came to him and says, you know what? If he would have asked you to do something difficult, wouldn't you have done it? He said, okay, I'll go. And he did. And he was healed. (laughs) Just do what God says. If he tells you to do it. Notice it was the Sabbath day when this happened. This miraculous, joyful event, not only of the man, but for everyone who witnessed it. Now, what was supposed to be a joyous occasion now becomes something that is entangled in scandal and suspicion and now reproach. And the Jews, therefore, verse 10, back in our text, said to the man who was cured, it's the Sabbath. Can I use my own voice? It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. You know, these men who look like they've been sucking on lemons, walking around with their canes and their little, you can't do this on the Sabbath. Not only were they going to ridicule Jesus for this, but they were going to ridicule this man. Hasn't he had enough? (laughs) Honestly, hasn't he had enough? Where's the love? Where's the compassion? And unfortunately, religion and man's rituals, I believe, frustrate God. Yes, religion and man's traditions. Their regulations sometimes are beyond ridiculous. In Israel, they have these Shabbat elevators. Have you heard about these? And again, I don't mean to pick on the Jews, but this is just a little ridiculous. They are so concerned about doing work on the Sabbath day, they actually have. In 2001, the Israeli Knesset passed a special Shabbat elevator. And basically, it's, uh, it was supposed to go into all public buildings, residential buildings, and they would install a control mechanism for Shabbat in the elevator. So on Saturday, or Friday from sundown till Saturday to sundown, they would turn this mode on. And, it, and this is a picture of what the elevator would, you know, looks like. The, the elevator would stop automatically at every floor allowing people to step in and without without having to press any buttons. Otherwise, Jewish law prohibits observers from using an elevator on the Shabbat in the usual manner because pressing the button to operate the elevator closes a circuit, an electric circuit, which is one of the activities prohibited on Shabbat and may also indirectly lead to writing of the new floor number in the display. Wouldn't you say it's a little crazy? You know, and we Gentiles, we, we do crazy things too, but this is just taking it to the nth degree. It just doesn't make sense. In Matthew chapter 12, remember Jesus, as he heals this man on the Sabbath, he's very much aware of what the day was. It says in Matthew 12, it says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And you remember what happened. His disciples were hungry. They grabbed the, the, the tops of the, of the grain. They ate. When the Pharisees saw it, they said, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Oh, for heaven's sakes. Take them to the stocks. And hook, them up to the, hook them up to the diehard battery. What have they done? Horrible things. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? How he went in and he ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat and for those with him. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire, again, notice mercy and not sacrifice. You would have not condoned or condemned the guilt, the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Is it wrong to do good on the Sabbath? No, it's the best time to do good on the Sabbath. In another gospel, in Mark's gospel, in chapter 2, verse 27, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. 
we get things so confused. We, we take the regulations and we're like, I got to follow this to the nth degree or God won't love me. I got to do this in order to be accepted by God and God's no, no, I, I love you. You're accepted already. You're accepted. If you're in Christ, guess what? You've been accepted. Hallelujah. Are you glad? You don't have to earn it. That's works. Revel in the grace of it. Rest in the grace of it. Going on in Matthew 12, in in verse 9, he says, Now when they had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, and there was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, saying, It's not lawful, or is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? You can almost see them with their shawls. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? I do. I have this vision of these guys just kind of really too starched. And maybe even talking in an English accent. It's not lawful for you to do this on the Sabbath. That they might accuse him. And then he said to them, What man is there among you if he had one sheep and it fell into a pit on the Sabbath? Wouldn't you lay hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is this man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. And the Pharisees went out and noticed. They plotted against him how they might destroy him. They just couldn't stand the thought of him doing this. So they said to him, it's not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered back in our text, he says, He who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. And what a double slap in the face for these Pharisees, because they weren't able to heal. And now Jesus is telling them what to do, violating their traditions. Then he asked them, verse 12, Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And remember, Jesus has always been kind to people. He's always been very harsh with the religious leaders who are supposed to be leading them into righteousness, leading them in the right way. He was hard on them, but he was very kind and compassionate to those who didn't know him, who didn't know Christ, who didn't know the way of salvation. He was very kind. And honestly, he was even kind to the Pharisees at times. But there comes a point where he let them have it, and they deserved it. Verse 13, but the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that uh, that place. This is so different from today, because when people get healed today, the pastor or the prophet or the traveling itinerant preacher, he gets the glory. They make sure they have the cameras right on him. So what was it like when you healed him? Well, I felt this moving and a shaking in my bones. And I reached out and I touched him and he fell backward. And then he's on television, and it's all about him. Is it about him, or is it about Jesus? I think it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It must always be about Jesus. Notice in verse 14, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The clear implication here is that this malady that this man had was brought about because of some issue of sin in his life. And we know that in Romans, the wages of sin is death. That's what you get. That's what you receive for a wage because of your sin. It's death. Certainly death physically and even death spiritually if it's not repented of. In Galatians 6 verse 7 it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man, whatever a man sows, he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will reap life after everlasting. I love that. Because sin does have consequences, doesn't it? And this man... In John 9, which we're going to get to, actually. I got ahead of myself. But God allows sickness. He allows trials in our life for various purposes, some for the glory of God. Some of these things happen to us because of sin in our life. Some may happen to us, these sicknesses, trials may uh, happen to us that we might learn patience and humility or just to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And this is certainly not a long list. This is a very short list, but let's just look at a few of these. God allows sickness or trials for the glory of God. 
We know that in John chapter 11, remember when Jesus rose his friend from the grave, Lazarus, what does it say? It says that when Jesus um, heard that his friend was sick and that he died, Jesus heard that and he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. That whole thing with Lazarus was designed. Jesus could have spoke miles away and said, Lazarus, be healed, and he would not have died. But remember, Jesus waited a day or two before he went. And why did he do it? Because he's such a mean God? No, he did it because he had a plan and a purpose for the glory of God. And they would all see it. And who would they glorify? God. That's worth it. I think if Lazarus could go back and do it all over again, he would say, Lord, you should have let me, you should have let me stay even a few more days dead and then bring me back to life. And let's do this thing really big. Right? Because he knew he was part of what was going to bring many to faith and also confirm others in their sin. It has a, there's a response to it, right? In John chapter 9, you remember there was a man born blind. And it says that as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? There was an, an expectation that because he was born blind, there must have been sin in his life. Be careful about that, folks. As we encounter sickness and, and, and different things, we, we, we can run to that. And this is what the disciples did. There's nothing new under the sun. When a friend of yours becomes ill and you've known there's been issues in their life, deep in your heart you're thinking, I know why God struck them. Because of that issue that he's got, that she has. Can't our hearts be so rotten sometimes? We can think, oh, it's because of this. It's because he's not being faithful to his wife. That's why the Lord struck him. And boy, he deserves it. I'd like to strike him too. Right? We get those attitudes, unfortunately. But notice, Jesus said, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. I mean, they were sinners, but it wasn't this blindness wasn't because of something that he had done. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be re revealed in him. And then later down in the chapter, when, when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and he took the, some of the dirt and the saliva and, and put it in the guy's eyes. And he says, now go wash in the pool of Siloam. And we visit that place when we go to Israel too. And then notice in verse 14 of that same chapter in John chapter 9, it was the Sabbath when he did this. Boy, Jesus loves to heal on the Sabbath. It's almost like he's just really taking these guys to task. If I were Jesus, I would only do it on the Sabbath. Just tell everybody, hey, look, I could heal you now, but wait until Friday night, come in, uh, and I'll do it then. But no, he healed. But he healed on the Sabbath. He wasn't concerned about the day. And then finally, later on, in that same chapter, the blind man, he finally speaks to the Pharisees who are upbraiding him and ready to throw him and his mom and dad out of the synagogue. What does he say to them? He says, since the world began, it was unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of anyone who was born blind. If this man, Jesus, were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered and said unto him, you're completely born in sins. And you're, are you teaching us? Ugly. Ugly heart. But what about for sin? Sometimes God allows sickness because of sin. We saw that in, in this man that we're looking at here in John chapter 5. Jesus said, sin no more lest a greater thing come upon you. There was something that he did that caused this to come to pass. It's always good to go to the Lord and ask him, Lord, in any sickness that you have. I remember when I had that tumor in my stomach that I had to have removed didn't even know what it was. Is it going to kill me? Is it benign? Is it malignant? I have no idea. Has it, is it metastasized? Didn't know anything until they actually go in there and take it out. Oh, you're good. <laughs> but during that time, believe me, I was confessing to things I hadn't even done. <laughs> yeah, it was me with Kennedy. I shot him. <laughs> it was me, Lord. I was there with, with Peter, or I was there with Judas. I'm the one who sold you out. I was confessing to things, anything. I was confessing to everything I could think of. And I, I still don't know the purpose of that whole thing. Maybe it was to humble me. I think in time the Lord will show me if he shows me at all. But I know that it was good because it got me dependent really quick on him. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know how much longer I had. didn't know anything. 
but it has a way of tuning us, doesn't it? Do you find that the Lord can tune you like a, like a guitar? He'll just tune you and get you into shape. And sometimes he uses these things. And it's good to ask him, Lord, why? And he may tell you. And you may discern that in time. But it could be because of sin. We know that in the Corinthian church, Paul said, examine yourself. Speaking of communion in, in um, Corinthians 11, for he who drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And he's speaking about the communion that they were taking and they were doing it in an unworthy manner. For this reason, he said, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. In other words, many have died because of their error. And he was purifying the church at this time in the early church. He's purifying us today. He hasn't changed. And what about Herod Agrippa? Because of his sin. What happened in Acts 12? He was there in Caesarea by the sea in Israel on the coast. And one day he was arrayed in royal apparel. And he sat on the throne and gave an oration to the people. And the people kept shouting, it's the voice of a God and not of man. The voice of God is speaking to us. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him. Because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten of worms and died. From the inside out, horrible, horrible situation. Have you ever been eaten of worms? Probably none of us have. <laughs> and what about that he might conform us to the image of Jesus? Paul the Apostle knew this more than anyone, I think, other than Jesus himself. In Colossians chapter 1, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul wasn't saying that he was making up for anything that lacked in Jesus, but he was just part of what was happening. He was going to continue to suffer in the way that Jesus suffered, and many people would suffer after him. He was just part of the group that was going to go through this. He knew very well that he was being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Everyone thinks that it's, it's all, everything is just great, but sometimes being conformed to the image of Christ, there's a humility, there's a brokenness. That's the way. It's not being exalted. It's, it's quite the opposite than the world thinks. We have to be ready for that, be prepared for that, and not be upset with it. In Philippians He says, but what things were gained to me, Paul says, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as dung, as rubbish, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Why? That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Boy, that's something that we need to really put our head around, the fellowship of his sufferings. Don't be upset when you find yourself going through something like this man, this lame man, going through 38 years, how long, however long it takes. Ask the Lord, find out what it's all about if he will show you. But don't kick against it. We have to come to terms with these things and be mature and say, Lord, there's a reason you've allowed this. And Lord, whatever you want to do, you do. Whatever it is, God, that you want to do in me, please do this. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Notice, being conformed to his death. That's something the American church doesn't like to hear. We don't want to be conformed to death. And yet the Bible tells us that we need to die to ourselves. The old man, the old nature needs to die it must die, and you must be born again. It's not even an option. You must be born again. Amen? Amen? And if you know of anybody who's not, compel them. Love on them. Tell them the truth. And never remove the teeth from the gospel. Remember we talked about that? Tell them the good news, but you'll have to tell them the bad news first. Because the good news is good news because of what it does from the bad news. 
You remember also in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, when Saul was on his way to Damascus, ready to arrest the Christians, the Lord knocks him down. He, he can't see. He goes into Damascus, and the Lord said to a man named Ananias, who was a believer in that town, he says, Go, for he, Saul, is, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name for, before the Gentiles, before kings and the children of Israel. Notice, for I will show him how many things he must, he must suffer for my name's sake. This Saul, this zealous man of the law, I'm going to show him. I'm going to be glorified in him. Go tell him the great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Oh, that doesn't sound like something I want to sign up for. But you know what? Paul would later say after all he's been through, I would do it all again. I'm ready. Bring it. (laughs) I'm ready to go to Jerusalem to die. I'm ready to go to Rome. He's not afraid. And neither do we need to be afraid either. And God also allows sickness to teach us patience and humility. Again, Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians 12, what does he say? Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, notice this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me, and he said, my grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Paul must not have had the prayer of faith. He must not have had enough faith. He didn't, lay, he didn't uh, uh, what is it, claim it, name it and claim it. He didn't blab it and grab it. Must not have had strong faith because God didn't heal him. There are people who think that. And yet God says, no, Paul, I'm going to leave this here. Because I'm going to show you things in your life. I'm going to reveal things to you that Christians, a couple thousand years from now, are going to be reading this, like we are tonight, to this morning. And it's going to change their life. And I need to humble you, Paul. Because prior to this, you were Mr. Fancy Pants in the Jewish culture. You were of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. You were zealous. And now you've come to me. And Paul, I've got to break you. Don't be afraid when you're broken. It's important that we ask God to break us. But a bruised reed he shall not break, and a, a, what is it, a, a, smoking, a, a reed he won't break, and a smoking flax he won't quench. But notice in our text, this final verse, it says, The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Now that he could see, and now that he could see, And now that he was made well, actually we're, we're back in chapter 5 here. He told the Jews that it was Jesus, and now Jesus would be a marked man. From that time forward, he would be a marked man. So let me ask you the question, do you want to be made well this morning? Do you want to be made well? You know, in the first, te- in the first century church, James said this, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And I want to encourage you this morning, and and again, if you've got physical illnesses, come up and pray. We can anoint you with oil if, if, if you'd like that. And if you haven't, the, even the greater thing is if you've never received Jesus Christ into your heart, that's the greatest healing. Because folks, remember, this time that we have on the earth is so short. It's so short. Then eternity. Think of that. It, it, eternity will make what we've lived on this earth seem like it really didn't happen. It would be so insignificant. And that is where we're going to be. Give your heart to Christ. Rededicate your life and your heart to Jesus Christ. Take those things that you know that are happening in your life, maybe things that you're doing that nobody knows about, repent of them and turn from them and be restored and renewed again. 
and ask the Lord to heal you, not only physically, but Lord, heal me. Take these things away. I know that they are an affront to you, God. Cleanse me, Jesus. I love David in Psalm 51. Cleanse me, Lord. Seek me and see if there's any wicked way in me and cleanse me and then lead me in the way everlasting. Isn't that what we really desire? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made well? That's a question you're going to have to ask yourself and run to Jesus. He's the only solution. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Father, we come before you this morning again just uh, thankful for this man and thank you for you, God. Thank you for reaching down and, and, and singling this man out, Lord. He He was there that day and thought to himself, this is just another day, and here I am, and tomorrow I'm going to be in the same place, and yet God, in your compassion and your love, you you saw what was going on. Please touch him. Please touch us, Lord, today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.